Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. Phil Davies wasn't the marrying kind. Everyone said so. His school friends called him Mavis. His parents. The Pontons Holiday Camp in Prestatyn Sands, North Wales, wasn't known as a breeding ground for future pop icons. There were no tales of a young David Bowie ever having visited, for instance. Nor were there any reported sightings of Mark Bowie. It was great seeing you today. You probably don't believe me. Not after everything that's happened. But it's the truth. I'd never lie to you, Tom. I never have. Not once. Not that he was looking too bad for his age. He had always been considered fairly handsome, usually by straight women, admittedly. And unlike many gay men on the scene, he didn't run around like some strange teenage impersonator. Sure, I can help you find a better job. Sure, I can set you up with a better apartment. Sure, I can take care of you and love you and see to it that you'll never be lonely again. Now turn over. Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Today's special guest is an accomplished novelist, journalist and interviewer. He cut his teeth on the LGBTQ section of Time Out magazine back in the 90s and his early activism for London gay policing group Gallup and AIDS awareness group ACT UP have both helped shape his past and inform much of his writing since. He's also the founder and host of award-winning LGBTQ literary salon Polari at the Southbank Centre. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for that national treasure in waiting, the one and only Mr. Paul Burston. So, Paul Burston, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Scratch and Sniff tonight. There's so many strings to your bow that it's difficult to really know where to start. Uh, but as usual, I'll, I'll take uh, Julie Andrews' advice and roll back those years. What, <laughs> what books were you reading when you were young? What was influencing you? When I was young, um, I read all the usual things like Enid Blyton and stuff like that when I was very small. Um, then uh, when I was about 12, I discovered Stephen King. Um, Carrie had recently come out a couple of years before that and I think someone at school lent me a copy or something like that because it was it was a book that was you know too old for someone at that age really but it really struck a chord with me and I loved the way it, loved the way it was written um, and I've been a huge Stephen King fan ever since so I, I got really into Stephen King I got really into horror I was a typical teenage goth I was into all the kind of dark stories <laughs> and dark music and dressing in black and all that stuff fabulous um, yeah dyeing my hair black and wearing black because it's diamond. interesting Stephen King is now sort of evolving into what's considered a national treasure and that was one of my things on, on the list for you but I, I see you evolving into a national treasure oh well that's a bit flattering <laughs> you're getting there anyway well you know you I, start off as an activist and then that informs your writing career, not to mention your other stuff, journalism, charity awareness, interviewing, world domination. I was very, I was a very, um, I wasn't very political when I was, I mean, I, I, I used to go to C&D marches when I was very small because um, when I was a teenager because I had these, these, these friends who were at school with and their parents were very, very lefty and my parents are very, very conservative and I, was, I used to hang out with them and go on, on marches and things. But when I came to London um, when I was 19, I just wanted to come here. I, went, I came here to go to college, but really I came here to be gay because I couldn't be gay where I was because I was living in South Wales in a very small town. It was very, very 
rugby culture, very very macho and um, very unforgiving. I was quite a freak, so I did look, I did, I did, I did, I did stand out, but um, I wasn't out. So I came to London and threw myself into the gay scene and sort of catching up on all those teenage years that had been spent sort of repressed, I guess. And then because I was because I, I found I was always looking for answers to things. I was very inquisitive, so I, I sort of cultivated this group of friends who were about five years older than me, gay men, gay male friends who were about five years older. And they were the generation that was impacted by HIV and AIDS. So by about 89, when I was 23, um, everyone started dying on me. And it was just like, the, it was like the biggest wake-up call ever. It was just, it was, it was a horrible, horrible time. Um, but it really galvanised me, made me sort of, I, I was drifting before that, really. I was, I left college with no idea what I wanted to do. I was sort of writing stuff, but not really doing it properly, not really dedicating myself to it. Um, of course, and then, of course and when that you, happened, I realised you know, that time is precious. You need to make the most of it. A- absolutely. I was just was going to say, you then you joined ACT UP. Or was ACT UP something you were part of the origins of that? Yeah, I was, I was, I was at the very first meeting of ACT UP London. Um, I obviously had been going in, in, in America, but um, I, heard, I heard on the grapevine there was this meeting happening at the Lesbian Gay Centre in Cowcross Street. And I went along and um, I just threw myself into it. I mean, it completely took over my life for about two, two and a half, three years. Just to say, it's it's the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power Act yeah. up. Yeah. It was very, it was very, it was a very grassroots um, activist mo- movement. There was lots of people involved who were HIV or had AIDS or were, were impacted by it, um, and there was also a lot of women, um, lesbians and straight women, but mostly lesbians who felt sort of part of part of that cause, either through personal affiliations or political affiliations. So it was quite a mixed group. And a lot of, a lot of the time, the archive pictures imply that it was a group of gay men. It wasn't. It was very mixed. Um, and it was it was like a family, really. It was it was amazing. I mean, I, it was a very, very tough time, but it was also exhilarating time because you know, the things we did. I can't quite believe some of the things that we did now. <laughs> Looking back, catapulting condoms over Pentonville prison walls. Oh, good for you. Um, blocking traffic. We did a lot of blocking traffic because that made the news. Um, it's very suffragettes, isn't it? Did, did you wear the outfits? <laughs> well, no, the, 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 the act-up uniform was leather leather biker jackets, um, sort of ripped jeans, so 501 jeans, and uh, Dr. Martin boots. Nearly everyone Five dressed ones. like that, boys and girls. Um and I got arrested. I mean, a lot of people involved were, were had had jobs, day jobs that meant they couldn't really risk arrest. So they were involved in other elements of the of the organisation. So they would do fundraising or marketing or outreach or something. Um, but I was in the action group because I, I didn't mind getting arrested. So I got arrested all the time. And back the, back then there was no. So, so if you if you got arrested in say I don't know Tra- Trafalgar Square, you'd be taken to Bow Street. Um, cells and then to the, then to the court you'd be given a, a, a bind over but if you then got arrested somewhere else in another part of London they didn't actually c- communicate between right. divisions so you, at one point I had about four bind overs which you shouldn't technically be allowed to have four <laughs> bind overs you should be in prison um, but yeah I got, I got arrested a lot um, I spent a lot of time in prison cells a lot of time in on demos because, of course, you also worked for the London Gay Policing Group, a Gallup, uh, for people who experienced hate crime, sexual violence, domestic abuse, which was particularly supporting the LGBTQ uh, community. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Gallup then was a bit narrower in its work than it is now. It's, it's evolved since then. It was then the Gay London Policing Group, as well, Police Monitoring Group. So m- most of our work was, was basically taking phone calls from men who'd been arrested for consensual sexual offences, so, you know, public toilets or whatever. Um, 
or people who'd been um, on the receiving end of homophobic abuse or violence. So we'd have people who were getting aggravation from their neighbours or people who'd been queer bashed. Um, sometimes the same situation would happen in one corps. There'd be somebody who'd, who'd been you know, attacked while cruising or something and they were ashamed or embarrassed to tell anybody and so they would ring us in confidence and we'd speak to, we'd give them um, free free advice and we'd also refer them to a solicitor who would give free advice um, and, and legal support and emotional support but it was very underfunded um, and the calls the number of calls in the late 80s went through the roof because the police were being the police then were so hard on us Jesus I there remember was, oh, it was just it was awful I mean there was a, there was a, there was a landmark incident where a young man called Mark I can't remember his other name, um, was very, very badly beaten up on Clapham Common with baseball bats. I mean, he's, he was hospitalised and had brain surgery and the whole thing. And the night that that was happening, the police were on the other side of the common chasing after men in the bushes and arresting them. And you think, what is the priority here? Um, and that case was a turning point because it got into the media and there were enough sympathetic voices in the media, sort of the left-wing, sort of the Guardian, places like that, the Independent, um, that, that reported on it and then the local news and so on and, and it, it helped swing things and we started, we started to get meetings with the, with the police and just, you know, discussing how they were policing our community because um, they treated us as if we were criminals not as if we were victims So of course you edited uh, Time Out magazine and one of the founders of Attitude I mean you, you know you really are steeped in uh, LGBTQ well, I was, I was, law I was um, my first Job as a journalist. I, I, I did some freelancing for various places like Capital Gay, sadly no longer with us, um, and a few other free sheets and things. And then I got a job at City Limits, which was kind of the sort of rival to, to Time Out. Um, I, I was doing holiday cover for somebody who then subsequently became ill and didn't come back to work, and so I got the job. Um, and I was there for about a year, year and a half, and then the job at Time Out came along. So I applied for that. Um, I really enjoyed that job for the first 10 years. I was there for 20 years part-time. I enjoyed the first 10 years immensely. And then after that, it sort of wasn't, wasn't so much fun. The, the, the work culture changed a lot. And um, it, it, it suited me for a long time because it was, only, it was only 20 hours a week. So it meant that I could do that, which meant I had a mortgage and I had security, but I could also do the things I wanted to do, which aren't, aren't secure. So writing books and, and making... I used, to, I used to make television documentaries as well and stuff like this and, and write lots of other, free, other journalism. And it, it, gave me, it gave me that sort of basis for being able to do the other things I wanted to do. Whereas if I had a full-time job, I wouldn't be able to do those other things. I know people do, but I wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how people manage to have a, a, hold a, f, a full-time job down and write novels, honestly. I, I could not do that. So it, it, was a, it, was a good, it was a good balance. And then after about... I joined there in 93. Two and then in '94, I, I I'd fallen in with this group of people that I knew really well who were involved in publishing, and they would they'd done some magazines for an, for a publisher, and I'd had this idea for ages that I wanted to have launch a new gay magazine. There was only Gay Times then. I mean, there was free sheets, but the only, the only um, monthly was Gay Times, mm. and we had this idea for what became Attitude, which was initially, it was quite a different thing to what it became. It was actually initially going to be, it was quite kind of postmodern and it was quite kind of like, this is a men's magazine that happens to be gay. It was that kind of yeah, a, approach yeah. to things. Because um, you had quite a few um, competitors at the time that, that didn't last very long at all. But I remember there was quite a, a few... called Phase that came out at I remember the same phase. time. And wasn't there one which was like Women's Weekly type of one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, 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 it, it, was, it was quite a... It was, it was it was it was the it was the era of the lifestyle magazine, wasn't mm. it? And, and we launched the this, we launched exactly the same time as um, 
what's it called, Loaded. So Loaded came out in the same month that Attitude came out, which I thought was quite a telling picture of of that period in the 90s because Loaded was this very kind of postmodern, ironic, but regressive mach- mach- machismo magazine for, for straight men. But was it met for men who... What was it? Men, there was some ironic strapline to it. it. Was men who should know better, something like that. So basically, it was giving giving men permission to be lads. sexist yeah, and lads yeah, yeah, yeah. in the name of this new lad phenomenon. An attitude was was sort of doing the same, doing the opposite thing within sort of the gay world, which was sort of saying, "Well, we can be more than just this stereotype." And I think looking back on it now, it was it was quite a seismic moment, really, because I think I think I think they both. I mean, loaded is no longer around, and attitude is. So ta da! <laughs> Results. Well done, boys. <laughs> So talking about your uh, your books obviously Shameless was the first one. How important was it to reflect the LGBT community, warts and all, which is a very much um, a theme in your books, I think? I think, I think that's always been um, a large part of what's driven me as a, as a writer because I think growing up, I was starved of any representation in, in books and I would find my my sort of characters I could identify with where, where I could find them. So, you know, I'd read Stephen King or I'd read whoever and I would find other ways of relating to characters. But I, I didn't really know that there was such a thing as gay literature or, or gay books. And and then I started reading some in the 80s and a lot of them were really good and a lot of them were very earnest and very, very... Um, it was the era of... I, I understand why, why it came about. It was, this, it was the, There was this big focus on positive imagery, it was called, and it was all about we have to present positive images of ourselves. And even though I can see the value in that, I also felt that it wasn't telling the whole truth. And my experience of the gay world of that by then was was not entirely positive. And I thought, well, I think I think we should talk about the things that are wrong in our community as well as the things that are right, you know. Um, and I think doing it with because my first my first novels were, were, were sort of black comedies, and doing it with humour, you can get away with stuff. Um, if you if you if you write columns as I did that were quite kind of in your face, people get quite angry with you, and I used to get an awful lot of hate mail, and people used to come up to me night in clubs and night <laughs> nightclubs and bars and tell me off for things I'd written. Oh um, but if you write it in, in fiction, you can get away with it, and especially if you if you if you if you if you wrap it up as comedy, you can yeah. you can tell you can you can deliver quite sort of harsh home truths mm. if you, if you make people laugh. The boy serving behind the bar oozed confidence the way most of the predominantly 20-something crowd oozed CK1 or Escape for Men. He was cute in that silky, sulky, vaguely Latin way that promised a career modelling underwear for Calvin Klein, or at the very least, a job behind a gay bar in Soho. He was also absurdly, enviably young, certainly no older than 20. Martin felt attracted and resentful in roughly equal measures. What was it John always said? About yesterday's trade becoming tomorrow's competition? Well, there was little danger of that happening in this case. Martin knew from years of experience that boys this young and this pretty rarely perform sexual favours for anyone who couldn't match them in the beauty states. Pout for pout, muscle for muscle. And at 32, Martin was in rather a different league. I mean, just to say, Shameless uh, was an unapologetic view of the gay world in late 90s London, but also very much a morality tale. 
Well, that, that, there's, that, I have that side to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're just telling us all off, I, aren't you? Well, it, no, it's, it's 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 the Oscar Wilde thing. It's like you know, um, you know, the good end happily and the bad end unhappily. That's what fiction means. And um, I wanted to sort of put all of my experiences of of the gay commercial scene that I was living at that point into this novel. Um, the main character, Martin, was not based on me at all. He was based on my neighbour, who was called Martin, who insisted I call him Martin after him. <laughs> um, and the, the opening of the novel where Martin comes home and his, his, lover, his living lover has basically moved out and moved in with a male prostitute, um, that, that actually happened, or a version of that ah, happened. A right. version of that happened. Yeah. Not, not, not quite like that, but sort, sort of like that. So that was as a starting point. And then I just wanted to write this story about a character looking for love and, and looking for it in all the wrong places. And also, it was also a reaction to Bridget Jones because... Bridget Jones's diaries come out and they'd been the, the first sort of wave of what they termed chiclet. And in a lot of those early wave of those books, they were always, there was always the gay best friend who had no emotional life of his own and was just there to dispense fashion advice and a shoulder to cry <laughs> on. And it drove me mad. And I hated them so much. I hated those characters so much. And so I wanted to, write, to reverse it where, the, where the, may, the gay character was the kind of old romantic and it was the female character who was the wild one. So Caroline, the best friend, is actually the wild one in the story. She's yeah. much wilder than Martin is. Yeah. He had always been considered fairly handsome, usually by straight women, admittedly. And unlike many gay men on the scene, he didn't run around like some strange teenage impersonator, squeezed into outfits designed for someone half his age. He also knew that 32 wasn't exactly old, not in real terms. But as John was also fond of saying, he was practically 50 in gay years. If John's theory was correct, then gay men aged about the same rate as dogs. In fact, the only people who aged faster were Greek women, which is why John swore blind that in all his years as an air steward, he had never once met a Greek woman between the ages of 25 and 50. By the time they reached their mid-twenties, their body clock switched into fifth gear and suddenly they were swathed in black robes and riding a donkey. According to John, a similar thing happened to gay men, only they swapped the black robes for black leather and the donkey for a dildo. And it went down really well. I mean, it, it, went, it went down particularly well in America. I mean, I got, I got an amazing, um, really long review in the New York Times Review of Books, which was like, oh well, my God. Apparently you were shortlisted for the State of Britain Award 2001, which I isn't was. bad at all. No, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Um, and of course, this followed on, just to say, but obviously this followed on from uh, Queer as Folk, which was a groundbreaking Channel 4 series written by Russell T. Davis. Um, was it quite sort of uh, heartwarming to, to watch that and know that you were thinking along similar lines? Obviously, that was years before your stuff. Well, I mean, Queer's Folk came out just before... I mean, I, that, that shame took me quite several years to write because I was working oh, right. at that time. Mm. So it, it kind of overlapped a bit. Um, and Russell really liked it and gave me a really nice quote for the cover, which is very sweet of him. Um, I, I thought Queer's Folk was... I remember sitting watching the first episode and being completely blown away. I couldn't believe that somebody was being so unapologetic and it was there was no attempt to tell the straight audience bring them up to speed it was just assumed that they that they that they have to get with it and that first episode which has so many sort of, whoa <laughs> moments in it um it still stands up now it's st it's still got that power now i'm thinking of something right now yes 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 no one told you about that did they and at the time there was an awful lot of people in the gay community that were actually quite up in arms about that. I remember watching um, Right to Reply, which was the Channel 4 sort of points of view type programme about television, and there was the then head of Stonewall Group and a viewer from Birmingham on there basically complaining about it, saying it was bad for the community, it was negative, blah, blah, blah. 
I was like, what on earth are you talking about? And I wrote this column in Time Out that was so sarcastic, like saying it's not a public information film. It's called a drama, um, which Russell told me later on he'd read and it really gave him a morale boost. Because they, they were getting a lot of flack at the beginning. Yeah. He got a lot of flack at the beginning. Do you think perhaps it was just slightly ahead of its time? I do, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's why it still stands up now, yeah, because, it, because it was ahead of its time. And I think that the fact that it was so unapologetic, that it was written with such a sort of confidence and a joie de vivre which was so lacking in most gay representations in film and television at that yeah. time um, and also they were relatable we all we all knew those guys mm. we all knew we all knew at least one of them you know I always um, felt that was a merge of the three I don't know if that was a usual uh, I, suspect, line. I suspect that's how Russell wrote I suspect yes. Russell's a bit, a bit, bit of all three I can recognise lots of bits <laughs> Scratch and Sniff Online with Nick Randall Hollywood you ain't been acting like you probably should It's time you listen, Mr. Hollywood You're not the same guy from the neighbourhood If someone had told Billy that today his life would change as dramatically as the latest Jerry Bruckheimer blockbuster after a particularly bad audience test screening, he would have smiled politely and told him to spare him the bullshit. Any number of people had promised him all sorts of things over the years, usually in return for some sexual favour or another. Sure, I can help you find a better job. Sure, I can set you up with a better apartment. Sure, I can take care of you and love you and see to it that you'll never be lonely again. Now turn over. Each time Billy had kept his end of the bargain, and each time he'd felt well and truly shafted when his newfound benefactor failed to follow through. So he could be forgiven if, these days, he was wary of anyone who expressed a sudden interest in his welfare or promised him that a brighter future was waiting just around the corner. Besides, there was nothing to suggest that today would be remotely different to any other long, hot, manic Monday in L.A. Let's talk about Star People. That was dealing with homophobia in Hollywood, a sort of a nod, if you like, possibly to uh, Rock Hudson and all that. But you sizzle it up with sex, drugs and diva tantrums and murder. Well, there was always a dark um, strain in my black comedy, so you know people started to, people started to die in them. Um, Fabulous. I wrote Star People because I I was I'm obsessed with Hollywood and I'm obsessed with the, the the way the closet operates in Hollywood, and I'd been over to LA a few times and interviewed various celebrities for various magazines, and I'd seen it in action. I'm not going to name names, obviously, but I'd seen how it operates and. All the you people, can like name names. Yeah, Nobody listens to this show. Yeah. It's fine. All the people that that, <laughs> that that enable it, and often they're gay people themselves that enable it, and it made me really cross. And um, I wanted to write a story about a character who's basically trapped in this sort of like gilded cage, really, which is the the actor in the, in the story. But I also wanted to kind of because 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 in the previous book, the sort of villain figure, or one of the villain figures, had been this this um, hustler boyfriend of of the main character who steals his boyfriend. I wanted to sort of write a story in which the hustler was the was the hero, and I'd, I'm I'm obsessed with um, Jacqueline Suzanne Valley of the Dolls, so I kind of thought of the characters as being like the characters in Valley of the Dolls. Mm. So it was kind of like a sort of satire about Hollywood and celebrity. He'd spent the best part of the morning working out with Casey at the Crunch Gym on Sunset. A popular meeting place for West Hollywood's gay party boys, Crunch was generally far too busy and way too gay for Billy's liking. However, it did boast a stunning view of the Hollywood Hills, otherwise known as the Swish Alps. 
As inspirational a vision as Cher at 60 or Brad Pitt with his shirt off, this window into a world of international fame and outrageous fortune rarely failed to get the juices flowing, provoking endless speculation about the lives lived and then their hills, and steering the conversation away from the familiar discussions of last night's trade or the next big circuit party. In fact, so intoxicating was the view, and so great the thirst for gossip, that it was a wonder that anyone found time to perform much in the way of exercise. This probably explained why Crunch was the only gym in West Hollywood where male club members spent more time studying the view from the window than they did sizing up the talent in the steam room. Well, sex was never far from anyone's mind, but when a gym was this popular and this well-appointed, it went without saying that certain codes of conduct should be observed. Billy North is, you know, a pun on... So Billy um, West is a pun on Jennifer North, and there was there was lots of kind of little in-jokes in, in, jokes in yeah. it. Um, but as I was writing it, it got darker and darker and darker, <laughs> and I realised I'm going in a different direction mm. now than where I thought I was going. It, it was sort of touched on in Tales of a City, uh, Armstead Mopin's series of books. I think there was a, uh, there was a name that wasn't mentioned. Yeah, there was Robert like, dot, yeah, yeah, dot, yeah, dot, yeah. Dot, et cetera. Yeah, but, but, but it wasn't explored in the way that, that you went straight out, balls out to do it. Well, I think you know. Different type, type, type I, story. I think Armstrong was writing at a different time, and I think I think yeah. he had a different agenda and a different, um, you know, that 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 those books started life as a column, and I know from interviewing him that you know he he, he made a point of he he wouldn't he wouldn't write uh, a pseudonym because because they wouldn't let him use the, the name. He insisted on it, on it just being a blank, so that the reader would be alerted like there's something that's being redacted it's very powerful yeah it's very powerful it's much more powerful than actually than doing any other way i think and um yeah i I know he's a he's a very different writer to me although he's been i've been compared to him which is very flattering but um i think his his he's coming from a different place i think i i I was coming from a different place and i was quite i was quite embroiled in that world for a while and um there was parts of it that, parts of it I found attractive, and there's parts of it that really repelled me, and so I, all that comes comes through in the book, I think. <laughs> the Pontons Holiday Camp in Prestatyn Sands, North Wales, wasn't known as a breeding ground for future pop icons. There were no tales of a young David Bowie ever having visited, for instance. Nor were there any reported sightings of Mark Bolan, Brian Ferry, or any of the glam rock gods who sent multicoloured shockwaves through the grim, grey Britain of the 70s. Yet it was here, one fateful day in the long, hot summer of 1976, that two of the brightest stars of the 80s first laid eyes on one another, and a little piece of pop history was made. Anthony Griffiths, aged 16 of Bridgend, South Wales, had left his parents squabbling in their Swiss cabin-style chalet and was making his way towards the Dragon Bar in time for the under-18s disco. Somewhere in the distance, Save Your Kisses For Me by Brotherhood of Man was playing on a tinny transistor radio. Needless to say, this was not a good omen. Still, he soldiered on, dressed in a blue mohair sweater with black peg trousers and a pair of see-through plastic sandals as worn by Bowie and the man who fell to earth, he cut quite a figure as he slouched past the groups of holidaymakers engrossed in games of crazy golf or developing skin cancer by the pool. His hair was dyed bright orange, heavy on top and falling over one eye, but chopped short at the neck. Again, this was a look inspired by Bowie. Anthony prided himself on the fact that he was always the first person in Bridgend to imitate Bowie's latest style, 
By the time everyone else caught on, he'd already moved on to the next look. He and David were alike in so many ways. Lovers and Losers, shortlisted for the Stonewall Award of 2007. Um, uh, let's talk about that. Gender bending in the 1980s. Well, Lovers and Losers came about because I hadn't written about AIDS very much. Um, I'd written co- about it as a journalist in, in terms of columns and things, but I'd never written about it in fiction. And I think it was because I was afraid to, because I didn't want to go back to that place. Where, where, where it all happened and I didn't want to relive those years particularly and so I, I, had, I discovered this way of writing it where it was filtered through this prism of nostalgia so the story takes place in the eight, well it starts in 1979 and takes place then and now or, or, or what was then now which is 2007 so it's, you've got um, reality television was, was just taken off in the, in the, in the noughties and was huge and I created this reality TV show that was a parody of of the worst of those early um, celebrity Big Brother and so on, and it quickly, quickly the reality actually took over from the novel because actually those shows are, are as bad as the as the bad as, as bad as the clink <laughs> as I called it in the novel. Yes, um, but it's really about this friendship between this gay guy from South Wales, where I'm from, and his straight female friend, and they leave South Wales and they become pop stars, and they then fall apart. They have this really, really successful few years and then everything falls apart. It was kind of inspired by Soft Cell and Eurythmics and all those duos from that time that I was really, really affected by as a teenager. Um, and then it, then what happens is that the storylines converge and you, you then meet these characters now and um, you, you learn about the, the, the legacy of that period and, and one of the legacies of that period is HIV. And... Um, so there's a there's a there's a, there's it, it, someone dies very early on in the story, and it was my way of sort of dealing with all that grief really and processing it into a book. And it was the first book novel I'd written that I wasn't there wasn't much dark humour in it. it. There is humour in it, but it's not it's not like the previous two books. It's this it's much more um, honest. It's much more heartfelt, I think. And of course, Russell Davis is now writing. I'm not sure what it's called, but um, it was going to be called The Boys, but they've changed the title now because of the other program that's come on called that. Oh, but he's okay. like, I, I, I had breakfast with him if, um, about six weeks ago, so he wanted to pick my brains about being in London at that time because I was living here then, and he wasn't, and he wanted to get some sort of details, some you know, colour. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that oh, very that's much. That's going to be amazing. Phil Davies wasn't the marrying kind. Everyone said so. His school friends called him Mavis. His parents, Colin and Sandra, had long since resigned themselves to the fact that their only son had never shown much interest in girls, well, not in that way, and that the responsibility for producing a grandchild would probably fall to his younger sister Claire. Even Claire, barely 15 and already disgusted at the thought of childbirth, found it hard to argue with anyone who suggested that her older brother was a bit of a tog, which was the local term for a boy who wasn't expected to settle down with a nice girl any time soon. The Gay Divorce C 2009, which was option for TV. Now you're, you're really getting somewhere. Option for TV. Bring it well, on, baby. Well, it, no, nothing came for it in the end, but it was great fun. Um, yeah, The Gay Divorce C was a, s- a satire about... Um, well, it was based, on, it was based on, a, on a real incident. So there was a guy that I knew called Jeff who owned the box bar. And I used to go there all the time. And I met my husband there. And Jeff 
got married to his uh, long-term partner, Michael, and we went to the wedding, civil partnership, and Jeff then confided to me that when he was much younger, he was married to a woman, which I didn't know. Mm. And that just set my mind racing. I thought, this is a really good idea for a man to get married twice, once to a woman, once to a man. What a great premise for a novel. But obviously there has to be a, there has to be a sort of a problem, and the problem is that when my character divorces he's called Phil when he divorces Hazel he doesn't realise that Hazel's pregnant with his child so oh. the past comes back to haunt him I love it it's fantastic yeah. so it was, it was it was writing about you know I mean there was a there was a whole there was such a huge furore at the time about civil partnership and gay marriage and it was very much sort of, sort of in the zeitgeist I suppose and I wanted to write something about you know gay love and and what what relationships mean because the previous books had really been about sort of dysfunctional relationships and people sort of um, you know, getting trapped by celebrity or trapped by drug abuse or trapped by, um, you know, hedonism. And I wanted to write a book that was actually a celebration of love. And um, although, of course, being me, there's, there's, a, there's a fly in the ointment, so things don't go entirely according to plan. The odd murder or whatever. <laughs> but there's no, no one dies in that book. Oh, OK. No one dies in that book. certainly entertained the possibility that he might be gay. He'd flushed with recognition when Mark Ullman first appeared on Top of the Pops, and when Bronsky Beat released their second single, Why, with the opening line, Contempt in your eyes when I turned to kiss his lips, he'd played it for weeks. Why? Because Phil had kissed a boy on the lips. It was someone's 18th. They were both drunk, there were no witnesses, and neither of them spoke about it afterwards. But that was about as far as it went. He'd never had sex with another boy, and he wasn't sure he wanted to. Gay sex wasn't normal. It was strange and scary, especially now, with all this talk about AIDS. Relax, said Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but Phil couldn't. He didn't want to be like that. He may have played at being a bit of a freak, dyeing his hair and experimenting with makeup, but deep down, he wanted to be one of the ordinary boys that Morrissey sang about. He wanted to fit in. He wanted to be safe. It was it was well received, but it was uh, the timing wasn't great. Um, 2009, 2010, the publishing industry got, got affected by the, the the crash, the financial crash. Oh right. And lots of what we call mid list authors, which is basically those of us who don't who aren't bestsellers, um, got dropped. So I got dropped, and I've been I've been with the same publisher for all four books, and then I got dropped, and it was a real shock. Really, I didn't I didn't, I didn't see it coming, and. I think I'd always been very, very lucky. I know now how lucky I was because most authors don't have the privilege of being, you know, with the same publisher for many years. Usually, you're you're, you're literally fighting for every contract, okay. and you're you're writing books out of contract, which I'd never done before. I'd always written a book, you know, I wrote I wrote a proposal, it got commissioned, I wrote the book. Mm. Now 
everything changed. And I had to write a book for the first time out of contract. Gosh, how interesting! And that was that was a tough one. It took me it took me a couple of years. So basically, to, to, unsolicited, would you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I had I had an agent, um, but. I didn't know what I was going to do, and I didn't. I, I was advised quite quite rightly that I couldn't carry on doing the same thing because clearly that wasn't going to sell. Mm. So I had to think of what else, what else, and because the answer was obvious, because it was what 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 do I actually read, and what I actually read yeah. is crime fiction. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a huge fan of, you know, well, lo- lo- all kinds of crime fiction, mm. mostly sort of what you call psychological thrillers, I suppose. Um, you know, okay. Patricia Highsmith is a big 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 fan of her. Um, of course, we've had Linda LaPlante on recently, and, and Widows has come back. Yeah. <laughs> what a plain dump. And also, crime fiction is a great way of writing about social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, there's a lot of there's an awful lot of an awful lot of um, crime writers who've dealt with issues around gender and sexuality in their mm. books. Or racism and homophobia and issues like that. And I would say just the general underbelly of society yeah, yeah. That, that perhaps doesn't get uh, yeah. viewed enough. And the other thing is, if you write if you write crime fiction, because you're already part of, of what they call genre fiction, i.e., crime, mm. you don't get put into the LGBT pigeonhole box in quite the same way. Mm. So you, it's it's actually much easier to move around in yeah. the crime world than it is. In, well, that's certainly that's been my experience. You 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 just get. Ex- Embraced as a crime writer rather than a gay writer. Yeah. I don't mind being called a gay writer at all, but I don't want it. To, I don't. I wouldn't want it to get in the way of readers. I wouldn't want people to think that because I write novels, because I'm gay and I write novels that have gay characters, that then they're not for everybody. Yeah, because absolutely. of course they are. Yeah. Because mm. that's pointless. Why would yeah. you want to write just for a narrow narrow audience? That's ridiculous. So are there other genres that you haven't explored yet? Science fiction. <laughs> no, I I, I I I wouldn't be able to write science fiction. I know what my limitations are. So I think I think I need to just. I sort of feel my way. So, I mean, I, I started writing this book after after I got dropped. I started writing this book. It was originally called The Soldier's Wife, which was the working title of um, the film. Oh, what's it called? We're about the Black Crying Path? Game. Okay, sorry, sorry. So, 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 so the, working, game, yeah. the working title of The Crying Game was The Soldier's Wife, or The Soldier's Girl, it was called. Okay. And, of course, the twist being that, you know, she's, that she's, um, her gender is a bit more ambiguous than mm. that. Um, so... That was the working title, and I, it was basically because I grew up in a town that's, that's a very big army recruitment town. Where, where was that then? It's called Bridgend in South Wales. Oh, okay, okay. And the the local cemetery, which is where we have family and everything and friends buried, family and friends buried, um, there were loads and loads of soldiers' graves for all the for going back to all the different wars. So I'd always gone up around it. Right opposite my parents' house is the is the uh, TA, the territorial army base. So. It was always in. It was always sort of around me. I was in the. I was in the TA when I was a, when I was a teenager, wow. and I was very interested in that. And then I met a guy called James Wharton, who was on the cover of Attitude magazine, on the cover of Soldier magazine. He was the first out gay soldier to go on be on the cover of a magazine, and he was in the House of Cavalry and he served with Prince Harry in Afghanistan in uh, Iraq, and he introduced me to all these friends of his at the barracks, and it was interesting because. For me, coming from the point of view of being a sort of gay writer or gay journalist, to meet all these these guys where they weren't gay but they weren't straight entirely either, it was quite interesting. And so I wanted to write a story about ambiguity. And, and um, so the story became the story about this husband and wife who were separated because he's at war. She's in South Wales in Bridgend or near Bridgend. And the town is also a war zone because it is on, on the weekends. And <laughs> it was kind of comparing these two different experiences and they both... They're both trying to be brave in their different ways, and that became the Black Path. All right, McGrath? Owen looks up from his makeshift sun lounger and squints at the man standing over him. 
Gradually, the face comes into focus, and he sees that it's Jackson. There was a time when they were friends, of sorts. They come from the same area of South Wales, joined the army at the same time, trained together, even made it from private to Lance Corporal together. That all changed when Jackson was involved in a fight back home, broke some lad's jaw, and was demoted. These days, there's a certain degree of tension between them. There's also an over-familiarity on Jackson's part that wouldn't normally be tolerated, but is a reflection of the time they've known each other. Not that this makes Owen dislike him any less. Fine, thanks, he says. Just catching some rays. The desert sky is the palest blue. So pale, it's practically white. Feeling the hot sun on his face, he can almost convince himself that he's on holiday and not snatching a quick half-hour behind the tent when, technically speaking, he's still on duty. He resents Jackson for the intrusion and for bringing him back to the reality of Camp Bastion where you can never really relax and you're never entirely alone. The, the Black Path is a real place in Bridgend that is a, a, an alleged beauty spot, and it is beautiful actually, but an awful lot, awful lot of bad things happen there. And it was a bit like in a Stephen King novel. I, 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 I was very influenced by Stephen King writing that novel because it was like the Black Path becomes almost a sort of character in the story in the way that in okay. his book you have the house. Or, yes, yes. Um, I wanted to write a novel where there was a a real strong sense of place and that the mm. place was actually as important. Because all my previous novels have all been pretty much based in London and in okay. the world that we all live in and we know. And this was the first time I'd written a book that was set in my hometown and in a place I've, that I don't know, i.e. Afghanistan, where, where Owen is, is a station doing the story. And there's a sort of, there's a, there was a, there's a playful um, relationship that develops between him and a younger gay out gay soldier because by that by the, time I, by the time I wrote this book it was about 10 years since the Air Force um, uh, the, the Army uh, you know laws were part were changed and, and people could serve openly as lesbians and gay men yeah. so I wanted to write about I wanted, I wanted to character that represented that change A few feet away a fresh faced young soldier lies basking in his boxer shorts listening to his iPod Private Collins only arrived a few days ago All Owen really knows about him is his name and rank they may be escaping the boredom together, but they've exchanged no more than a few words. So there's this character called Collins, who's this really cocky, confident, mm. um, unashamed, you know, cute gay lad, which was great fun to write, obviously. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> and uh, and Owen can, becomes a bit sort of like confused about his feelings mm. for him in the course of the story. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of little gay sort of twist going on. I wasn't, I wasn't planning it when I started writing the book, but I realised as I was writing it that I, I couldn't avoid it, really. Well, I love the way you fla you're flagging up the changes as well, that's, you know, in, in, in the community. Well, I, th I, think, I think that because, I think because, I, because I'm first and foremost a journalist, I think that's inevitable, you know. I, could, yeah, I, th I, think, I think it's just ingrained in me that, that I sort of filter what's going on and it's somehow... I don't. I don't. I don't always do it consciously either. It, it just sort of filters in, and, and it kind of comes through in the in the work. Well, I would say your work is the richer for it. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Shame about Armstrong, Jackson says. Fucking ragheads. Collins looks up, then settles back into his iPod. Earlier this afternoon, a soldier from another platoon was killed by a roadside bomb while out on patrol. Details are still emerging. But the word is that he radioed in to say there was a funny smell in the air moments before an improvised explosive device ripped apart his Viking personal carrier. Three others survived by leaping from the vehicle. The body of the dead man was found 40 metres away from the scene of the blast. What everyone thinks, but no one dares say, 
is that he'll be the first of many. There are far fewer casualties during the spring months when the insurgents have their energies focused on the poppy harvest. Just one reason why the arrival of summer here isn't greeted with quite the same enthusiasm it receives back home. The Black Path was, uh, I've got here, long listed for The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize. <laughs> yes, it was, which was great. And it, and, it, and, it, and it brought me a whole new readership that I, that I hadn't had before. It was the first book that I published where I got a lot, uh, much, much more diverse readers. I mean, before I'd always had sort of gay readers and then and LGBT readers, and then I had the sort of straight allies and... Um, but I think a lot of a lot of people would have thought that my book, that those book books weren't for them. I think I think the way that it was, they were, I was being pigeonholed, and the Black Path changed all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it became much more, much wider. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. Before we get to The Closer I Get, which is your latest novel, which we must uh, focus on, um, it's time for the soundtrack of your life, where you get a chance to pick a track which might be representative of something personal, uh, professional, or just because it makes your feet tap, or all three. And uh, Obviously, there's so many tunes out there, so little time, but um, anything that might uh, might reflect your writing or, or a lost love? or <laughs> not doesn't, doesn't, doesn't reflect my writing. It doesn't reflect... I lost love, but it reflects what I believe very, very strongly, which is David Bowie's song "Heroes." I just, I just think that the the spirit of that song about that we can be heroes just for one day, and that you you can't change the world, but you can make your small stand in it and stand stand up for what you believe in, even if you know you're going to get shot down and crushed the next day, still do it. I, I absolutely believe that.
It was great seeing you today. You probably don't believe me. Not after everything that's happened. But it's the truth. I'd never lie to you, Tom. I never have. Not once. I'm not like the others. Sometimes I think I'm the only truly honest person left. So let's talk about The Closer I Get, your latest novel. Uh, it's such a page-turner. I, I absolutely loved it. I just had no idea it was like weaving and turning and um, <laughs> and I thought I had it nailed and then something else happens that's like, oh, my God, I wasn't expecting that at all. And I, I'm usually quite good with stuff like that. So, yeah, you sort of confounded me a little bit. Uh, you must have been very pleased with the response to it. There's some amazing reviews I was, on it. I've been overwhelmed by the response to it. I wasn't, I mean... You know, you, you you write a book and you write the best book you can write, and then your editor, your your agent reads it, and then your editor reads it, and you make changes and you polish it. And but once it goes out into the wider world, you've got you've got no control over what people are going to think of it at all. Mm. And my husband, who is a very very harsh critic, actually, he's quite you know he's quite he's quite brutal sometimes in his opinions. Um, he loved it and said, "Trust me, it's really really you know it's, it's really going to be well received." And with very few exceptions. It has been amazingly well received. So I've, I've been I've been on cloud nine, really. What I found was quite interesting, and I, I this isn't mentioned as, as a criticism at all. Is that I didn't particularly warm to the, I, perhaps the old guy, the the guy in the flat. Yeah. He yeah, he was quite sweet. But generally, yeah. I think it's, perhaps it's it's a reaction to me living in the city for so long and certain gay characters who you you meet along yeah. the way. And um, but despite that. You still managed to have characters who you you wanted to know what happened to them. Now that's quite—I would imagine—that's quite a difficult thing to do to write characters that are so brutally honest um, that you don't necessarily warm to them, but you want to know what happens to them. Yes, and I, I I knew very early on that that was going to be the challenge of the book because I knew that for the story to work, there had to be um, ambiguity about both the two main ca- the main characters, so that Tom, who is the novelist, and Evie, who is the alleged stalker who's been mm. causing him trouble. Um, I knew that it had, it had to be more um, nuanced. Mm. It couldn't simply be that he was the p- poor little victim and she was the baddie. It had to be much more complex than that. We live in an age of such deceit, don't we? People lie all the time. It's second nature to them. Everyone is so afraid of appearing stupid or saying the wrong thing and offending somebody. Everyone's so keen to make a good impression, virtue signalling and boasting about their perfect lives on Facebook, posting artfully posed selfies and filtered photos of their dinner on Instagram. Social media has made liars of us all. Not me, though. If anything, I'm too honest for my own good. Maybe if I'd learnt to hold my tongue more, we wouldn't be in this mess. But then I wouldn't have been true to myself. I can't change the way I am, Tom, even for you, even if there's a price to pay. You say yourself challenges, really, which is like, you know, how, how far can I push this before I'm going to lose people? Yeah. Um, and there are certain parts of Tom that I feel huge sympathy for and there are parts oh, yeah. of Evie that I feel sympathy for but neither of them are very particularly nice people but I think that's that's true of life as well I think there are lots of people in, when, when encounters in real life mm. who you know there's good and bad in everybody and, and people be, also also you don't know there's a bit in the book where another character Emma says something along the lines of you know you don't know how we're going to respond until it actually happens no, no one knows mm. what we're capable of until yeah. it actually happens mm. and I think that's really true and I think you know we meet Tom at a time when he's not his best self. Yeah. Put it that way. He's yeah. he's he's not in a good place, and when people aren't in a good place, they don't always behave their best. Right. So, 
Um, neither he nor Evie are particularly likable. Um, but but I think they're enough, interesting and yeah. I, I find them compelling to write and people have said they found them compelling to read, so hmm. job done, you know. Funnily enough, I, I didn't particularly warm to... Yeah, and now I I shouldn't say too much. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I'm gonna bleep. I'm gonna bleep there. But uh, just something about. Anyway, let's, um, I was going to read some uh, reviews of this, uh, just because they're so amazing. A compulsive, disturbingly relevant, twisty, powerful psychological thriller. The Closer I Get is also a searing commentary on the fragility and insincerity of online relationships and the danger that can lurk just one like away. Uh, a gripping ride through the heartlands of need and hurt, even though this most thrilling Paul Burston never loses his sense of real pain and suffering. A sucker punch of a a twist that took my breath away. Um, absurdly gripping and enough to unnerve anyone who has ever spent any time online. And there's many, many more. So, um, your best book yet? Do you think? I think I, I, it, I think so. Yes. I mean, I, I think that also that you know, at the time when you when you've, at the time when it's finished, you always hope that the book you've just finished is your best book yet. Mm. Um, but it's for others to decide ultimately. And. I'm I'm proud of it. I think I think it's it's the best book that I could have written at that point in my career. You know, I mean, I've, I finished it two years ago, nearly now, um, or eighteen months ago, and I'm now deeply embedded in the next one. So now my head's full of the next book. So I've already moved on because that's how that's how the process works. You know, you used to finish one book and you, you start on the next one. Um, you have a few weeks off in between, usually if you're lucky, and then you start on the next one. So at the moment, I'm really embedded in the one I'm working on at the moment. Um, but, but of course, one thing we we do need to flag up with this book, this is sort of based on truth as well. You you had a um, uh, some sort of online stalking. I don't know what you feel comfortable about talking about no, that, absolutely. but it's I, I had a I had a an online um, stalker, yes, um, troll, whatever, and it got really out of hand. And um, she it was a woman. She really disrupted my professional and personal life hugely. It was it was it, she was relentless and. It went on for a long time and it eventually went to court um, and she was found guilty and given a restraining order. And I never heard from her ever again after that. But it left me in such a strange place um, because I was so angry afterwards. And much like Tom, I was um, very discombobulated by the whole thing. I was, I'd been, I was on antidepressants. Um, I was getting counselling and I was still very angry. And had she continued to harass me, because I only discovered after the, after the fact, after the, after the court case was over, that I discovered then that forty um, something percent of people um, convicted of stalking or harassment breached their restraining order. No one tells you that, and we were told by the police that were she to breach the order, she would go straight to prison. This is a complete lie, um, because she breached the, the order with somebody else. There was another, there was another target apart from me, and. She was subsequently rearrested and went on trial again and was given another restraining order. So what's the point oh, of that? Sure. So that supplanted the, that, but that sort of seeded the idea for the book, which was you know mm. because at that point I thought if, if she'd started up again, I'm not quite sure what I would have done. You used to admire my honesty. Refreshing, you said. A free thinker. Did you change your mind, or were you humouring me when you said those things? I'd hate to think that you lied to me from the outset. That would make you a hypocrite, my darling. I probably shouldn't tell you this. I probably shouldn't be writing to you at all. But before we go any further, and our words are twisted and taken out of context, I want to make one thing clear. I don't blame you. 
Honestly, I don't think you knew what you were getting yourself into. I don't think either of us did. Maybe if we had, we'd have done things differently. But life's not like that. You don't wake up one morning knowing today's the day you'll meet the person who'll change your life forever. You don't go into these things with your eyes wide open. They just sort of creep up on you. And that's how it was with us. When she was first harassing me, I didn't know who she was or where she lived or anything about her. She All I knew was this screen name. I didn't even know what her real name was. By the end of the court case, I knew her real name and where she lived. And I, I can't be 100% certain that I wouldn't have taken the law into my own hands had she continued giving me grief. Mm. Because I was, I, was, I, was, I was in such an... I was so, I was so driven beyond <laughs> beyond reason by that point. It was just like, stop it, just anything to make it stop, you know? That's absolutely that, terrifying. That, that's given me the idea for the book, that I wanted this yeah. character to be in that place when you meet him, that he's actually completely, you know, he's not in a good place at all. And, and I, I, I can relate to that. So at least you got something good out of it, and it was therapy at the same time, I it guess. It was very good therapy. And, and writing the, because I realised that in order to put the book to work, I had to make Evie sympathetic to some degree, and also, I decided to write it largely in her voice. And by doing that, I had to find points of empathy as a writer. So by doing that, it was very healing because I felt sorry for her by the end. Mm. I mean, the real person, not Evie. Mm. Um, whereas before, I was just really embittered and angry. I'm not anymore. I just feel like, oh, you poor, sad well, yeah, person. You know, yeah, what, what, what a waste of time and what a wasted yeah. life. Mm. Um Whereas before I was still like, <laughs> so it was a healing process. You know, it was therapeutic, but one cathartic. Of, one of the things I found about the book is I, I, I was trying to sort of put it down because I had other things to do. I would read the end of a chapter, which would end on a on an incredible cliffhanger. And then I think, right, oh, well, I've got to, got to read on. When I get to the next chapter, it's about the other person. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm not so interested in that because I want to know about everything. Then I read re- to the end of that one and I want to know what's going on there. So you just keep me. I was right up until the night reading it. That's great. That's, 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 I mean, that's what we aim for. I mean, mm. I mean, I'm 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 a very um, vociferous reader, and I read lots and lots of crime fiction. And there are some novels that you need to take slowly, and there are some novels that you just want to race through. And mm. my favourites are the ones you really want to race through. Um, I just read Lisa Jewell's new one, The Family Upstairs, and I read that in two sittings. Um, and often I would just, I would get so gripped that I I'd be like that like you just said I'll get, reach the end of a chapter and think I'll oh, just one more chapter and next thing it's five o'clock in the morning I'm still reading. Um, it's like I've a box set, isn't it? I've done a few all nighters. I'm a, I am a binger. I watch mm. box sets like that. So yeah, I binge, yeah. and I binge read often. Fantastic. So I, th- I think you know the whole point of of suspense fiction is is to is to keep the reader hooked. So you kind of want the reader to finish a chapter wanting to know what's going to happen next because that's the whole point of writing it's all about tension and keeping the keeping the reader eager to know what's going to develop you know over the page do you see tv as an option later on i mean would you consider actually writing a script as opposed to a, a novel well i wouldn't i'd never say never but it's not something that's um it's something that's, that I've been drawn to so far. I mean, would you adapt? Would you be prepared to adapt your oh, own absolutely, work? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I did, I did, um, I studied English and drama when I came to university, and um, I have written scripts in the past, screen, um, stage plays, um, not not terribly good ones, I have to say. But you know, I was <laughs> I was eighteen, nineteen at the time, um, but. I like being in control because I, I did I did a few stage productions when I left university. I wrote an adaptation of 
um, Les Enfanteries by Cocteau and I was I, I directed it and I also acted in it. And even doing both of those things, I didn't have enough control. Whereas when you write a novel, you are completely in yes. control. It's just you. It's just your words on the page or on the screen. There's nobody else. I mean, obviously there's editors and things, but you, there's not a director interpreting it. There's not an actor interpreting the role. There's not, you're in control of it. And I like that. I like. I like. I like to have my own little world that I'm the master of. You know? uh, and do you do you enjoy the solitude when you're writing? Because because some people struggle with that. Linda Plant certainly does. I I. <sighs> I I do struggle with it a bit. Um, I don't. I'm not. I, I I like my own company, and I quite I quite like um, sort of holding myself up and, and getting involved in a story and writing it. But there'll come a point at which I'm desperate for human interaction, and I live with my I live with someone my, my, my husband, so I'm not living alone. But I'm often away, and I'm often in hotels and stuff, and I'm often working. Um, I go. I have a place in Hastings where I go to write. And I spend more time on my own there. Um, and I do find solitude really conducive to the writing process, but I also find it not very good for the personal yes. <laughs> well-being because I end up feeling quite kind of climbing the walls. I get a bit cabin fevery, yeah. um, and I do get like I do feel I do get a little bit lonesome. You know, yeah. I think I think that, I think that's human nature. I think I I, saw, I read somewhere recently that that when we're um, on our own for too long, we start to release a, a chemical in our brain um, which makes us anxious, and it's because you know, it's, uh, as you know, when we were when we were sort of you know in the wild, <laughs> um, mm. before we were sort of socialised, that we would we would need to be in a group as a, as a pack for protection and yeah. for safety. And I think that's that, I think that's still hardwired into it's us. Sort of a race memory thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think it's hardwired. I I really do because I I, I, I know very few people who who are, gen- who are genuinely content in solitude for long periods. That's why that's why they have solitary confinement as a punishment in prison, for yeah, goodness sake. Yeah. We need we need interaction with other human beings. That yeah. we are social animals by by definition. And um I can do I can do periods of it, but I can't do it for very long. I need to I need, I need to what I tend to do is I tend to sort of write early in the day um and aim to get that side of my work done by sort of lunchtime and then arrange things to do later in the day that are, that are interactive with other people <laughs> so I don't go completely I can't always manage that because sometimes the work t- takes over completely but I try to do that as often as possible because otherwise you get a bit cranky <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of any book that you've read that you would have liked to have written yourself? Oh God, so many, so many. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, so many. Carrie, when I was a teenager, I, I mean, I, I basically sort of wrote a novel that was a complete rip-off of Carrie when I was about fifteen. Um, what, Larry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but a gay, a gay guy with telekinesis <laughs> who gets his revenge on all his schoolmates. Um, oh, I like that. Uh, Gone Girl is, I think, is a fantastic novel. Um, Talented Mr. Ripley is one of my favourite novels of all time. I think it's a, an astonishing book. Um, Patricia Highsmith to write a, a, an anti-hero who is a murderer and also sexually ambiguous, stroke gay, um, and make the, the reader root for that character is a pretty astonishing feat to pull off. And she pulls it off magnificently in that book. It's fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, any of those. I mean, I... I, I my, I often, I, I often feel like that. I mean, I often read a re- book, and I've, part of me thinks, "Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so 
pleased for them and probably thinks, like, God, I wish I'd written this. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that sort of envy we have of each other. Although the crime, I mean, the crime writing community is very, very, um, in my experience anyway, is the most supportive writing community I've, I've ever been part of. They, they, they really, really welcome each other. They really support each other. They really encourage each other. Um, they really help promote each other's work. And there is a kind of, Rivalry, but it's a kind of loving rivalry. It's a kind of friendly rivalry. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not competitive in a kind of nasty way. Nice. People are very, you know. God, I wish I'd. It's so good. I wish I'd written it. You bastard. You know what I mean? It's that kind of feeling. <laughs> and I like that. It's great. It's a nice. It's a nice. It's a nice way to be. Well, I've got a series called Barry Trotter coming very soon. It's about this uh, wizard. I won't go into details. I might ruin, <laughs> might ruin the plot for you, but <laughs> watch out for it, mate. I look forward to that. <laughs> Let's uh, finally go to your award-winning LGBTQ literary salon, Polari, at the Southbank Centre. And let's talk about that. Well, Polari, I studied Polari in 2007. Um, Lovers and Losers had, had come out in the in the February. This was in the May. No, it was actually later than the May. It was, it was more like uh, September. And I was really frustrated that because I because I because Lovers and Losers came out in May. Um, I'd missed History Month, which is in February, which is when libraries invite LGBTQ authors to come and read at their libraries. And a lot of the time, getting a platform for that work is very difficult. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd written three novels, four nonfiction books before that, and you know, thousands of pieces of journalism. I'd never once been invited to a book festival ever. And I was really pissed off about it. And I thought, well, I can either sit here and feel sorry for myself or I can do something about it. So I decided to start this little night um, and it started at the place called the Green Carnation, which used to be on Greek Street. Apparently, you were DJing. I was, I was DJing. Yeah, yeah. Many talents, yeah. mate. <laughs> well, I was, I was, that was because of um, because Lovers and Losers. You know, there was an eighties pop band in it, and uh, Tommy, who ran the Pop Stars in the Ghetto, um, hosted my launch party for that book and said, "Oh, you you have to DJ though." So I, I learned to DJ for an hour. So and I, and I really got the bug. I loved it. Awesome. So, so I did that for a while. Um, so I was DJing at Green Carnation. They suggested I do a night. I said, "Well, I'll do a night if I can if I can do it like this." And there'll be some, there'll be some readings. And it started off very quietly. It was wasn't hugely well attended, but it grew really, it grew very quickly. And so by sort of two thousand and eight. But about a year, it was really well attended, and somebody from Southbank Centre came along, and a woman called Rachel Holmes, and said, "Oh, you should bring this to Southbank." So we went there in two thousand and nine, and we've just been there ever since. And it's great because it's, I mean, I lo I love I love doing. We, we we tour now, and we we just had a big event at Heaven um, back in May, which was amazing. It was like our biggest audience ever on the main floor of Heaven. It was fantastic, um, and I like doing events in pub and club spaces because you reach a readers you, you reach an audience you maybe wouldn't reach in an art center but the good thing with south bank is you've got all that infrastructure and support around you so my job is just to go along and deliver the night whereas when i was in bars i have to go and make sure the microphone was working and do all the all the basic stuff and now i can just concentrate on sort of looking fabulous and dressing up and showing off and being silly um and hosting and and you know making the night run the way it should run which is you know there's a there's a real yeah. So it, also you become an interviewer as well, of course. Yes, yes. But so because I've always done that anyway as a journalist, but I've never done it in front of an audience before, mm -hmm. which I really like. Um, having an audience gives you permission to get away with things you couldn't get away with if you were <laughs> maybe in a private room with somebody. Um, but also I think there's a – it becomes a shared experience, you know, and I think that, that what's, what's, what's missing a lot of the time is um, – 
communication between within our community. I think and anything that gives us a platform and a place so people can actually exchange ideas mm. and talk about words and their meaning and books and literature and, and whatever is is a, is a great way of bonding and lots of people come to our event and it is, it is, it's become their sort of social outlet mm. because they, they, they don't want to go and stand, stand on, on their own in a bar um, maybe they don't even drink you know um, although we do have a bar at Polari in case anyone's worried about that we do have a bar <laughs> um, don't worry there's plenty, plenty of wine available Yay. Um, but it's really it's, it's, it's not it's not a sort of what I would call a bookish event in the sense that it's not sort of dry and um, worthy it's very it's like a cabaret, really. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's, a sort of, it's a sort of variety cabaret show in which all of the people on stage happen to be authors or poets. Mm. That's, how, that's, how, that's how I would describe it. And not necessarily gay authors. No, not it? always. I mean, it's the, the, the main core of it is LGBT, um, but that, that, that is, it's, it's, not, it's not narrow. It's very inclusive, mm. so it's mm. very diverse. And we have people who are, you know, all, all kinds of sexualities, all kinds of gender identities, and... All walks of life and all kinds, all all, all all genres as well. So mm. you know, I, I, I wouldn't dream of putting on a night where you've got four or five white gay men reading, mm. you know, lit, literary fiction because it would be sorry, but a bit dull because yeah. it, it's, it's all too it's too samey. Yeah. And diversity isn't something that's done to be worthy. It's actually a really good thing to do because it's actually more interesting mm. if, if things are diverse. You get you get you get a range of different moods and um, speeds and movements going on. So the audience. Are kept entertained, um, and of course, some of the authors they they read out extracts from their own work or poetry yeah, or whatever. They're, they're, it's, it's basically a it's a performative night. So mm. I, I I host and I introduce people, and then they read and talk about their work. But it's it's reading. The the, mm. the, the, the audience come to hear what the work is, um, and we have we usually have. Um, we didn't used to. It's quite a new thing, but we we now have an interview um, format as well. So we, we, we not 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 every month, but some months we have a headliner who then gets interviewed after after they've done a reading, and that's enabled me to have people on the bill who aren't writers in the way that, you know, you can't sometimes say read a, read a telly play out. Okay. So hence Russell know, C. Hence Davis, Russell yeah, Davis, which is we, coming up we, soon. We couldn't have had Russell on in, no. had we not changed. I'm the so looking forward to that. I'll be going to that. Um, so details for people who want to go to this. I mean, uh, do you have a direct website where everything yes, is on? There's a web. There's, we have a website which is polarisalon.com. So p-o-l-a-r-i salon.com, um, or the Southbank Centre, which is southbankcentre.co.uk. Um, that, that, that has all our events at the South Bank on. We also do the touring events, which are funded by the Arts Council. So on our, on our website, you'll get the other events we're doing as well. And they, and they run, what, every other couple, other couple of months or something like that? We're, we're, we do nine events at the South Bank, so okay. nine months a year. And then we do, I mean, this year we've done 20 events touring. <laughs> I must, we must be mad. Oh, yeah. um, we're, we're, we're still touring at the moment. We finish at the end of October. Um, and just to list some of the people you've had on, you've had Will Self, uh, Jonathan Kemp, uh, Molly Parkin. You've had really good quality people. Celia Imery, um, the wonderful um, Fenella Fielding. Oh, wonderful! We've had some amazing people on. Um, yes, it's been it's, it's been a it's been a it's been a real hoot actually. I mean, it's been running for coming up to twelve years. It's be our twelfth twelfth birthday in, in November. And you have a prize now. You have a Polare prize. Well, we started the when when the night took off. I realised that you know it was only fitting that I should be having created a platform for myself and my and my sort of you know contemporaries 
it was only right to provide a platform for the for the new, the new people coming up. And so lots of people that come to Polari have maybe not been published yet or have just or self-publishing, maybe haven't even done a reading in a public space before. And when we saw the quality of work out there, I thought well, we should do a prize to recognise that because, you know, getting an LGBT-themed book published is a challenge in itself. Yeah, yeah. So let's reward that. So we started this prize in 2011 and it's just gone from strength to strength. So now we've now we've got two prizes. There's the first book prize that has been running since then. And now this year there's another prize, which is for a, a book, any, any book other than a debut. So there's one award going to someone for their first book published in the last 12 months. And there's one award going to an LGBTQ writer at any stage of their career. Right. Um, and the quality of work has been f- phenomenal this year. It's been amazing. So I think I think... LGBT writing is in good shape. I think I think mm. the publishing side of it is a challenge still. I think right. I think there are still it's got better certainly than it was t- 2007 definitely. And I'd like to think that we we played some small part in that in in the UK. Um but I still think that it's still an uphill struggle often. You still get people saying, "Oh, does this character have to be gay? Mm. Does this character have to be a lesbian?" Well, mm. yes they do actually. And why why shouldn't we tell our stories? Why shouldn't yeah. we tell our stories? It's important to tell our stories. Um, I don't want ki- I don't want people growing up not knowing those stories like I like I grew up. Or, or, <laughs> is there pressure for, for these characters to have awful tragic ends because yes. they're gay? And yes. Still. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I I I don't think it would ever be expressed to you as as, as explicitly as that. It, it it doesn't it doesn't really happen like that. It's expressed to you in, in a different way. But it's there is there is a pressure. Um, that certain characters, it's not just us, it's also, you know, you know, black and ethnic minority characters have the same, and writers have the same issues with publishing, that there's an expectation of how they think you should be represented in your... your well, how do, how do you know? <laughs> I'll tell you how I should be represented. It's like this. And for um, that's, my, that's my version. Another gay person's version will be different to mine, and that's fine. But don't I won't be told by straight people how I represent myself? No way. It, it, it's like Russell's work with queer as folk being being um, slagged off by some of the gay community because yeah. they, they they seem to think that uh, well, it should be just about my story. Yeah, and it's like it is. It isn't the role. Of, it isn't the role of 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 any gay writer or LGBTQ writer to represent everyone in their community. That's a, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't you wouldn't say to a a, a straight crime male crime writer or female crime writer they have to represent all straight white people in their novel that's ludicrous <laughs> you write about characters that interest you and mm. sometimes those characters are going to be similar to you in some way and sometimes they're not yeah absolutely um and that's and you should have the freedom to write all those characters mm. and i think that it's just that too often we have this situation where we're where we're, we're either we're being we're either self-censoring or we're being censored in mm. a polite way by people and mm. I think we have to push against that at all times and and write write your truth as you see it and write the characters that you believe should be out there and represented in books. And if you if you can't find a book that, that you think, you know, represents you, then go go off and write it. <laughs> go and write it. Scratch and sniff. Online with Nick Randall. So tell us about the future of your career and all the different aspects of it. I mean, where where do you feel you're you're moving towards now? Um, I honestly don't know is the truth. I mean, I'm very happy with where I am at the moment. Um, I always want to do bigger and better, obviously, because I think everyone's like that. Um, I don't. I don't really have sort of like you know long term plans or anything. I just. I just work on the next project. So at the moment, I'm just completely involved in the book I'm writing and planning, finishing off this tour and then planning the, the next tour. Um, I always want to take 
Polari to different places and and reach new audiences. That's a that's a huge buzz for me still. And I always wanted I also wanted to do the same thing with my with my books. I want to reach new readers and take new people on 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 journeys. And as a writer, that's that's the best thing that you can do. It's it's the most rewarding thing you can do. Um, and hearing from readers and you know the fact that we've got access to, to each other now because of social media and people actually communicate with you and you get feedback all the time and people post reviews on you know good or good or bad mm-hmm. um it's all good really because you know before you'd, you'd release a book out there and, and apart from the reviews that if you were lucky you got into in newspapers and magazines you never really knew what people were, were thinking um and nowadays you do and and that's that's a big part of the game now and also you're expected to do it anyway publishers expect you to do it yeah. Um, it's, it's a big part of their marketing strategy mm-hmm. is to get you to market yourself. Um, luckily, I don't mind doing that, so that's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the next thing is to get this book finished and then think about what will what, 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 happen after that. I don't know. Um, well, it all sounds very exciting yeah. to me. Uh, Paul Burston, thank you so much. It's been an absolute honour having you, you on the show. It's and uh, any reminds me to give you, as we give all our guests, your celebrity goodie bag. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh my goodness. How wonderful. Oh, how lovely. So do enjoy that. Oh, that's really kind of you. Thank you. (laughs) Paul Burston, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I I will be king And you You will be my queen Though nothing Will drive them away Just for one day We can be heroes Just for one day And you You can be me And I I'll drink all the time That is a fact That's what love us And that is that Though nothing Will keep us together We could still time Just for one day SNSonlineshow.com, your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS. Take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts, featuring actors, writers, journalists, stand-up comedians, musicians and more. You can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases. And with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics including health, mental health, women's rights around the world and LGBTQ. 
contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs, a forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. snsonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. SNS.